My head must be more full of rocks than the ones on Easter Island if I thought I'd ever win this game. And if you think the aliens really built the pyramids, do you think that they could make me more sane? Cause if there's really more to life than what I see on the bright side, hanging out and drinking lots, where's the reason and design? I'm starting to feel I wish my life was engineered by ancient astronauts. My life was engineered by ancient astronauts. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that investigates parapsychology and the unexplained to find out exactly why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and the song you've just heard in the intro is called Ancient Astronauts. Uh, this, of course, is going to be an episode about the whole theory of ancient astronauts or the ancient aliens, as they're more commonly known now. But in particular, this is going to be an episode about Jack London and the ancient aliens. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Well, you may have seen the posters recently for the Call of the Wild movie. I've seen them on buses this week, and I've seen them show up on certain social media that I've checked out. Uh, Call of the Wild, of course, is one of the more famous books of the American author Jack London, uh, the other, of course, being White Fang. Both of them, of course, are books about life in the American West, California, and even Alaska. He did spend a little bit of time up in the west and the northwest, I should say. Uh, he spent about a year, I think, up there, and he is quite known for his books that he wrote about this time in his life. So who was this guy, Jack London? He was born in San Francisco in 1876, and he died in 1916. An American novelist, of course, but also a worldwide celebrity um, in his own lifetime. Now, when I first returned to the UK in recent years, one of the books I had with me for that epic trip was indeed Call of the Wild. So I've made my way through it. Now, I do read a lot of fiction from this time, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. He's not one of my more favorite writers. I mean, some writers from this period are just so easy to digest now. H.G. Wells is a personal favorite for a British example, Bram Stoker, a slightly tougher prospect. Jack London, you know, I can see why he's a big deal, and some of his prose is really amazing, and some of the images he conjures up, particularly of the American West, are very stirring. Some of his attitudes that you'll find in his books uh, have really stick in the throat now, and of course, when you read fiction from this time, that's always going to be an issue. Certainly, I don't read everything expecting that I will agree with the um, attitudes of the authors, especially not writing from this period. And yet some people of those days just really lean into the bad stuff more than others. And I'm going to be getting into that, unfortunately, quite a bit in this episode, because we're going to focus on a short story that Jack London wrote called The Red One, 
and while there's some interesting stuff in there, there's some pretty rough stuff in there as well. Now, he was a pretty interesting guy with some wide-ranging interests. He had a big interest in unionization and a little bit in socialism as well, which puts him on the right side of things for me to some degree. Uh, unfortunately, he also had a big interest in eugenics, which, having read the red one, doesn't surprise me that much, but, you know, we'll get to it. He even managed to write a novel called The Iron Heel, which was a sort of a dystopian uh, novel, a bad future novel. And for our interests on this show, uh, he managed to crank out a few short stories that touched on the sort of jungle adventures that I enjoy from this period, and also a little bit of science fiction as well. Uh, and we're going to see in this episode exactly how his one of his short stories that's science fiction orientated fits into the history of the concept of the ancient aliens. Now, as a young man, Jack London worked in a cannery, which sounds like a pre- having been a pretty terrible job. He was working long hours in bad conditions, and really he was dreaming of faraway places, and he wanted to get away from them. He's known to have written, I wanted to be where the winds of adventure blew, and the winds of adventure blew the oyster pirate sloops up and down the San Francisco Bay. So, what's an oyster pirate sloop? Well, there's not too much known about these, aside from what Jack London himself has written. Although I think it's fair to say that they must have been ships that were illegally collecting oysters and from areas where oysters were harvested uh, for selling on some sort of oyster black market. Slightly more exciting was in 1897 when he famously went to the Klondike Gold Rush in the Yukon. Now, what do I know about the Klondike Gold Rush? Most of what I know about it comes from a really, really rather good T.G. Cahar TV series from a few years ago. If you don't know, T.G. Cahar is the Irish language um, television station in my home country. It, you know, they did quite a ballsy thing with this show. What they did, they filmed in the west of Ireland, which is where they film most of their material, and they kind of had the nerve to film there and pretend like it was the Klondike in, in the Yukon in Canada. So, uh, you know, I remember being quite impressed with the, the sheer guts of doing such a thing, of making such a comparison. Of course, the area is green, wet, and nowadays it's covered in plantation fir forestry, which I guess to the untrained eye looks a little bit reminiscent of the, the northwest of North America. Anyway, quite a, quite a gutsy move to make, I think, for a small production company. As for Jack London, things didn't work out for him in that particular gold rush. He ended up coming back after just a short time, and he came back with scurvy as well, so he didn't make out too well. However, while he didn't find gold, or at least make his fortune from gold while he was there, he did make his literary fortune from his time in the Klondike, because it was his time there that gave him the impetus to start writing stories about the west of North America, And, of course, this led to most of his big successes, like I said before, White Fang and, of course, The Call of the Wild. Before we go any further tonight, I'll mention that I'm drinking Brewdog Punk IPA. It calls itself a postmodern classic. Uh, I guess I'll describe it as being a little bit fruity, maybe a little bit resinous, get in some of that sort of Pacific Northwest sort of uh, vibe. Uh, It's quite a strong percentage, but it's quite a small bottle, so I guess things will work out just uh, as they ought to. And so we come to his short story, The Red One, an early entry into what we're going to call the Ancient Astronauts Canon. 
Now, the ancient astronauts idea, oh, I think it's a pretty astonishing one. And it's definitely one of those fringe ideas that punches well above its weight. It may seem like a frivolous topic to focus on, but there's a lot of evidence to show that large amounts of people believe this. In fact, it is one of the most common paranormal beliefs that are going today. Now, the most recent figures I was able to get a hold of that back up this idea is from a study called the Chapman University Survey of American Fears. Now, they've done this several years in a row, but the most recent one I can get is from 2018. So they make a selection of fringe or paranormal ideas, and then they find out what percentage of people believe them. So coming in first is the, num is the idea of ghosts coming in at 58%. So that's a percentage reporting that they agree. So 58% of people surveyed they said that they did agree, either strongly or just ordinary agree, that places can be haunted by spirits. So that's the most widely accepted of the fringe beliefs. But number two, uh, that ancient advanced civilizations such as Atlantis once existed, and that's 57% of people surveyed believe that. So that's pretty enormous. And then number three is with 41% aliens have visited Earth in our ancient past. So the third most popular belief is the ancient astronaut theory, and that's what we're going to uh, focus on today. Interestingly, it's a few percentage higher than just a, a straight-up belief that aliens are visiting us now. That's 35%. I do think that's interesting, that more people believe aliens visited us in the past than that they are doing so now. Which I guess if you think about, you know, if you were to believe that they're coming now, you would probably require a fairly strong amount of evidence to convince you that that's the case. However, it might not be so, it might not be so stringent, it might not be so difficult to convince someone that aliens have come in the past because, I mean, there's a lot more of the past, I suppose. Uh, it's a much wider canvas, if you like, for us to project onto. And I've said it before, and I'll probably say it again, but most, if not all, ancient civilizations who, you know, have left us with Im impressive architecture and, 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 and structures have a sort of a mysticism built up around them. I mean, if you've ever seen a, a book about the supernatural or the paranormal or, or mysteries of history, guess what? You're going to have the Easter Island heads on the front, and you're going to have a pyramid, and you're going to have all the same stuff that you always see. You're probably going to have Machu Picchu, Basically, all these ancient civilizations have been wrapped up in kind of pseudoscientific mystery for, for several hundred years now, most of them. So 41% of people believing that ancient aliens visited us in ancient times. So a not insignificant proportion. Now, this is for the US, but I think we can probably presume that similar societies, such as Ireland or the UK, have reasonably similar figures, especially given as well, how influenced we are by, by developments in the US. Something else I'd like to point out is that these beliefs are most definitely on the rise. So uh, contrasting the results from this Chapman University survey, going back to 2016, 17, and 18, uh, the idea that ancient aliens have visited us, visited us in the past goes up from 27% in 2016, up to 35 in 2017, and up to 41 in 2018. So these things are on the rise. In fact, all paranormal beliefs are on the rise. 
and just for an example of some of the other ones, they, um, they talk about psychic powers, uh, Bigfoot being a real creature, and um, people being able to tell the future in descending order of popularity. But yeah, all paranormal beliefs on the rise. I don't think it should surprise anyone who's been paying attention. So strange to me personally, because I had such an in interest in this stuff when I was younger, and I saw no evidence of belief in it anywhere around me. And I just sort of, I guess because a lot of the books I was reading were older, from the 70s, 80s, or early 90s, I imagined that this was something that was a bit old hat, because it, most of it had been thrown out, because it just had not produced the kind of evidence that people had hoped for, when now I find quite definitely that I think the opposite is in fact the case. Uh, fringe beliefs are on the rise, uh, magical thinking is on the rise, conspiratorial thinking in particular, and as you know, if you listen to the show, I really, really trace a direct line between this sort of thinking and some of the crazy political stuff that's been happening recently. Uh, the, for more information on that, please go directly to our Death of Expertise episode from last year. So as for my own history with the ancient astronauts concept, I will forever uh, refer to it as ancient astronauts and not ancient aliens because, well, that's what Colin Wilson called it in the books that I read as a kid. Colin Wilson was a sort of 1950s almost philosopher writer who had one very well-regarded book called The Outsider, which he published as a very young man, and then very quickly his... Um, his career went downhill after that. By the time I picked up on him, by the 70s, 80s, and 90s, he was writing books about all sorts of fringe topics, which, to his credit, if that's the correct word, he did seem to actually believe. So I had various Colin Wilson books about UFOs and the unexplained, and he would often mention a guy named Eric von Daniken, who is largely thought of today as being the father of the modern ancient astronauts idea we don't really call it that anymore i guess number one because astronauts don't play the prominent role in our culture that they did in the late 60s and early 70s and also because of the tv show ancient aliens which couldn't call itself ancient astronauts probably for copyright reasons but that show has probably eclipsed von daniken himself now in becoming a, a name associated with the theory Anyway, Colin Wilson wrote a lot of books where he'd mention this guy, Von Daniken. He'd also mention the so-called serious mystery, which was the idea that the, uh, the doggone people of uh, Western Africa had knowledge about astronomy, which was just flat-out impossible, particularly their ideas related to the Sirius, the dog star. And he concluded that they must have had advanced knowledge from aliens who visited them in the past and that these aliens must have come from the star uh, themselves. So before going too much further, we'd better do a quick potted history of the concept of ancient astronauts. In particular, the years where this idea popped up before the infamous Von Daniken himself. So the acknowledged expert on this stuff, as far as I can tell, is a guy named Jason Colavito. If you're not familiar with him, he's a writer uh, and chronicler of strange theories and general all-around skeptic, I would say. He wrote an article in 2004 called Charioteer of the Gods, which is a pretty good place to start if you want to trace this history. But basically, he makes the case 
which apparently was considered kind of controversial at the time, though when I discovered it many years later, it really made sense to me. He makes the claim that a lot of the concepts of ancient aliens can be traced to, well, not anything factual, but something fictional, in particular the work of the great H.P. Lovecraft. So just to get the ball rolling on this, here's a quote he provides from uh, Lovecraft's very famous short story, Call of Cthulhu, from 1926. There had been aeons when other things ruled on the earth, and they had great cities. Remains of them were still to be found as cyclopean stones on islands in the Pacific. They all died vast epochs of time before men came, but there were arts which could revive them when the stars had come round again to the right positions in the cycle of eternity. They had, indeed, themselves come from the stars and brought their images with them. I do think Colavito is basically right to say that what we've got here are the basic tenets of the ancient astronauts' theory, all present and correct both in the Call of Cthulhu and then in the other uh, short novella, the At the Mountains of Madness from 1931. So basically, if you're not familiar with Lovecraft and his work, just very briefly, he creates this shared universe between all of his stories in which Earth has been visited in the past by these deities who are these creatures that are so powerful that, you know, humans are almost like ants to them. And though in his early work, he emphasizes uh, their, their godlike nature and that humanity looked on them as gods and did in fact worship them or sacrifice to them, it eventually turns out, especially in the Mountains of Madness, which is almost like a demystification of, of the Cthulhu mythos, uh, he kind of slaps a more science fictional take onto everything and it turns out that they were not supernatural beings but in fact extraterrestrial ones so in these well in lots of his work but particularly laid out well in these two stories we have all the basic tenets of the ancient astronauts theory we have the concept that humanity was visited in its distant past by extraterrestrials uh, that the records of their visitations have been passed down to us in myth and story and song and religion and art and artifacts. And we also have the concept that humanity was either directly created or at least instructed and elevated by these visitors. So in some versions of the theory, yeah, we are outright creations of the, the space visitors. In other versions, um, we were sort of a lower type of ape and that we were granted either intelligence or civilization or something like that by the visitors. And if this is making you think of Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey, yes, you are bang on the money. Definitely a, a precursor of um, eventual Von Daniken's ideas. So what's the connection between Lovecraft and Von Daniken? Well, in World War II, you have vast amounts of American troops suddenly descending onto European territory, and many of them were carrying... Uh, what we now call trench library literature. So this was kind of cheaply printed, cheaply acquired stories for often for ordinary working guys who might not have been tremendously educated or whose taste might not have been um, particularly sophisticated. It's funny to think that that's how Lovecraft was thought of in those days, being as now he's a bit of a darling of the uh, of the overly intellectual sort of science fiction fandom. But in those days, it was just pulp, you know? It was printed on bad, cheap paper, and it was slam, bam, thank you, ma'am, you know, big, scary, bug-eyed aliens on the front cover, 
naked women in bondage, all that good stuff. Anyway, vast amounts of this stuff uh, ended up on the continent because of these soldiers carrying their uh, cheaply produced leaflets and booklets. And sure enough, the the French, uh, you know, in whose territory they were tramping through, started to reprint some of these old pulp stories. And eventually they got translated into French, particularly by a publication known as Planet Magazine. And this included, of course, the work of Lovecraft himself, who was, lest we forget, a pulp writer for the cheap pulp American magazines of the 1920s. Now, the editors of Planet Magazine were two guys named Louis Pauvels and Jacques Bergier. Now, these two not only edited the Planet Magazine, but in 1960, they wrote a very strange book called The Morning of the Magicians. Now, most of what I know about this book comes from, guess who, Colin Wilson and his old 1990s books. I would love to get a copy of Morning of the Magicians myself, but it's out of print for many years and difficult to get a hold of for a decent price. But this seems to have been just a grab bag of, you know, new and recycled occult ideas. Some, of course, ones which had been used many times before, but some of which were, this is the first place where they seem to appear with prominence. So... This kind of kickstarts the whole, you know, Nazi occult ideal movement. There is, there's some older stuff from the 50s, but this is really the first big outing for it, as far as I can tell. It includes the ideas about the, the so-called Thule Society and the Vril Society. Uh, the Thule Society were real. They were one of the precursors of what became the Nazi party, but it's far from a straight line from one to the other, despite what you'll read in uh, cheap books about Nazi occult. The Vril Society, not so much. Vril, of course, being the... I feel like I've definitely mentioned this before, but the, the mystical force used by the coming race in Arthur Bulwer-Lytton's 1870 book, The Coming Race. Again, he was a guy who wasn't really, as far as I can tell, an occultist, but the people reading his books, particularly the theosophists, really wanted to believe that he was, so they took the idea of Vril seriously. It was really just a, a fictional construct you know, a, a, an element used in a fictional story, but they decided to take it, take it seriously and presume that he actually had some secret occult knowledge. Anyway, a lot of this stuff originates with the morning of the magicians, or at least was given a big push. They also bring the idea of ancient aliens to the fore uh, for one of the first times. Again, it ties indirectly with all of what Lovecraft was using in a fictional sense. Again, all that stuff, you know, visitations by aliens in the distant past and their effects on our own society. The difference, of course, was he didn't mean it seriously. Lovecraft was a fiction writer. In fact, he was famously an atheist and famously a materialist. He had no time for the occult in reality whatsoever. Not so for Louis Pavels and Jack Bergier when they wrote Morning of the Magicians. They're promoting these ideas as, as, as real ones and... It, there's a lot of evidence to show that not only had they translated and published Lovecraft in their own magazines, but they looked up to him as a sort of a as, a, as an inspiration. So all this finally takes us by a winding roundabout route to the infamous Eric von Daniken. Now, von Daniken was a Swiss hotelier and a con man, not to be too blunt about it. He spent several years in jail for tax fraud and various other kinds of fraud, during which uh, he wrote some of his most important work uh, from behind bars, as it happened. He wrote a book called Chariots of the Gods in 1968. 
and this was what really put him on the map. Now, Chariots of the Gods is the big breakout for the ancient astronauts idea. Morning of the Magicians has been largely forgotten nowadays and out of print, uh, forgotten by most except for people who are into such strange things, but Chariots of the Gods left a long footprint behind, a long shadow behind it. I've got a copy of the book myself here in front of me. I picked it up thankfully for half of nothing in a charity shop in Marleybone and I'm pretty pleased to say that probably no money from that went to Von Daniken himself. But it again, it's a grab bag of ideas which might have been new then but are really, really hackneyed and overworn now. We've got really lots... I mean, Von Daniken's evidence is a lot of supposedly out-of-place artefacts, which are sometimes known now by their shorthand. I love this shorthand. It's called Uparts. Out-of-place artefacts. So he's got these supposed um, anachronistic items showing up in time periods when they shouldn't have happened. So he, you know, these will be familiar to anyone who's done some reading into the ancient astronauts theory. But the Iron Pillar of Delhi, Pyramids of Giza, of course, the infamous Piraeus map, the Nazca Lines and the sarcophagus of Palenque. These are all really common things. They show up in episodes of Ancient Aliens, any show really that's trying to talk about ancient history and make it seem more mysterious than it really was, will probably have something to say about at least some of these things. Now, is there a direct link between Morning of the Magicians and, and Chariots of the Gods? Well, not if you read the first edition that came out in 1968, because in that edition, you know, Van Daniken neglected to mention that he stole quite a few of his ideas from Morning of the Magicians. Because of the threat of a lawsuit, he eventually did put in a little bit at the end saying, well, you know, I guess I've got to acknowledge Morning of the Magicians as an influence, and he cites them as a reference as well, but only under the threat of lawsuit, lest we forget. And so, thanks to Jason Colavito, we have this, the standard story of where the ancient ideas came from. The direct line from H.P. Lovecraft writing fiction and making no bones about it that it is fiction to many, many decades later, Eric von Daniken uh, presenting this as some sort of hidden truth. So that's the standard story. That's how I've always accepted it. I know that doesn't include every node on the tree. It doesn't include every element of the trip. And I'm always fascinated to find earlier examples that pre of this idea that predate Lovecraft himself. And that takes us, in a roundabout way, back to Jack London and his short story, The Red One, which was published in 1918 in a magazine called The Cosmopolitan, which presumably has nothing to do with the fashion magazine, bearing in mind, of course, that it was published two years after his death. Now, Colavito does note, when he's written about this short story, that we know Lovecraft has read some Jack London before, by the time he wrote his Ancient Alien stories, but it is unknown whether or not he had read this story in particular. So I was keen to get my hands on a copy and see, well, what exactly were the similarities, and was there anything in there that may have directly or indirectly influenced Lovecraft? The story opens with Bassett, a young English botanist, lost in the jungle on an island called 
Guadalcanal, somewhere in the Solomon Islands. One thing I did learn from this story that I didn't know was Jack London uh, makes the point that the Solomon Islands were named after explorers years earlier who were certain that they had in fact discovered where King Solomon kept his mines. Johnny goes to show how many different ridiculous and random places people were hoping to find those biblical artefacts. While lost in the jungle, Bassett hears a curious noise coming through the foliage. With the wantonness of a sick man's fancy, he likened it to the mighty cry of some titan of the elder world, vexed with misery or wrath. Higher and higher it arose, challenging and demanding in such profounds of volume that it seemed intended for ears beyond the narrow confines of the solar system. Earlier in his adventuring, he had a native accomplice named Sagawa, but unfortunately they were set upon by a hostile tribe and Sagawa was beheaded, Bassett losing two fingers in the attack. As he makes his way through the jungle, things get increasingly more hellish and there's a bit of a touch of the old heart of darkness going on. Once, and now, after the long lapse of time, he chuckled gleefully at the recollection, he had detected a shadow above him that came to instant rest as he turned his gaze upward. He could make out nothing, but, deciding to chance it, had fired at it a heavy charge of number five shot. Squalling like an infuriated cat, the shadow crashed down through tree ferns and orchids and thudded upon the earth at his feet, and, still squalling its rage and pain, had sunk its human teeth into the ankle of his stout, tramping boot. He, on the other hand, was not idle, and with his free foot had done what reduced the squalling to silence. So inured to savagery has Bassett since become, that he chuckled again with the glee of the recollection. Now, you tell me as the story goes on, but Bassett sounds like a bit of a prick, to be honest. It's not always entirely clear whether London intends him to be so, however, Maybe that's just me. Uh, unfortunately, uh, some of the really, really awful racial stuff that we're about to talk about comes from Bassett, and it's not clear whether it's Bassett's point of view and Bassett er, and London doesn't necessarily agree with it, or whether it's London's point of view and some of his other writing uh, about the people of the of the South Pacific doesn't really make it seem as though that might be the case. It makes it seem as though. Uh, London is perhaps quite in sympathy with Bassett here. In any case, Bassett continues being a prick through the jungle. He finds a native village with a girl hanging. It's not clear if she's been put there for any particular reason. I think we're supposed to presume that um, the tribe are going to eat her or something like that based on what happens next. Bassett doesn't spend too much time worrying about it. He just shoots her and moves on to terrorize another village where he shoots his gun, scares everybody in there, and then burns it to the ground. Now... I do read a lot of literature from this time, and in particular I enjoy stories of jungle adventure and that sort of thing, and I'm used to them coming with a certain component of, you know, uh, pretty disgusting racial stuff, or colonialist stuff too. But, like I said earlier, some authors really lean into it harder, harder than others. And London really seems to be going to town here. You know, I've read The Lost World, it's one of my favourite books, there's some nasty imperialist undertones, but you never feel like Arthur Conan Doyle really hates everybody just because they're not, you know, English. But in this book, I'm really getting some negative vibes from it. In any case, after various jungle misadventures where he commits atrocities, Bassett finally reaches an open grassland and he hears that mysterious booming sound again. 
but now it sounds sweet to him. I guess he's been through so much that uh, the sound starts to become like a sort of a goal for him, something he's struggling towards. During this time, he starts to reminisce about how he got into this pickle. Basically, he was uh, on a hunting expedition from a ship, and he's because he's a biologist, he was looking to track down this particular kind of jungle butterfly. But he gets lost and almost dies of thirst when he's rescued by a young native girl named Balata. And all descriptions of her for the rest of the story are just vile. I'm not, I'm not going to go there, and I will have no quotes about them. Again... Is this coming from Bassett, and is he supposed to be a prick? Uh, hard to say, but my money's not on that interpretation, to be honest. I'm not, given other things that London has written, I'm really not willing to give him the benefit of the doubt here. I'm not a very versed scholar in his work, so I could be wrong here, but it's not looking good. In any case, Bellata claims Bassett as, as her lover or whatnot because she's found him. And there's a lovely, a lovely, another charming scene where the rest of her tribe arrive on the scene and one of them accidentally sets off his gun, uh, blowing one guy through the midriff and exploding another's head. Uh, instead of uh, destroying him immediately as some uh, source of, of murder, they instead decide to keep him alive because they're so impressed by him because he has things like a watch and a compass and such. So again, we're into the rather unpleasant colonial trope of white guys come into the jungle and they are immediately treated like gods or superiors because they have various trinkets. Uh, anyone who's now thinking about that scene in King Solomon's Mines where the native Amahagger treat uh, Alan Quatermain and his crew as gods because one of them has a glass eye that he can take out or they're able to predict an eclipse, take a drink. In any case, it's now time to introduce a character I do enjoy and this is the local witch doctor in Nagurn. Don't know if London intended me to enjoy him. I don't think that he's supposed to be played as a sympathetic character. But whew, he's a lot more sympathetic than Bar Bassett is. So the witch doctor tells him about the strange noise that he's been hearing. He tells him that it's called the Red One. And we get a quick crash course of the place of the Red One in the local tribal history. Physical the Red One must be. To emit the wonderful sound, and though it was called the Red One, Bassett could not be sure that the red represented the colour of it. Red enough were the deeds and powers of it, from what abstract clues he had gleaned. Not alone, had Nagurn informed him, was the Red One more bestial powerful than the neighbour tribal gods, ever a thirst for the red blood of living human sacrifice. But the neighbour gods themselves were sacrificed and tormented before him, he was the god of a dozen allied villages similar to this one, which was the central and commanding village of the Federation. By virtue of the Red One, many alien villages had been devastated and even wiped out, the prisoners sacrificed to the Red One. This was true today, and it extended back into old history carried down by word of mouth through the generations. Another name for the Red One that the tribe have is the Starborn. Why the Starborn? In vain, Bassett interrogated Nagurn. According to that old devil-devil doctor, the Red One had always been, just where he was at present, forever singing and thundering his will over men. But Nagurn's father, wrapped in decaying grass matting and hanging even then over their heads among the smoky rafters of the devil-devil house, had held otherwise. 
That departed wise one had believed that the red one came from out of the starry night. Else why, so his argument had run, had the old and forgotten ones passed his name down as the starborn. Now, during all this conversation, Nagurn, the witch doctor, is engaging in the charming activity of curing heads. And I still find him a more pleasant character to spend time with than Bassett, so that will tell you about the attitudes of this story. In any case, as Nagurn is curing his hunted heads, uh, they have a, a charming conversation in which Bassett tries to get the secret of the red one from Nagurn. Uh, he keeps telling him that, hey, you can, you can cure my head if you want, if you like it so much. Uh, all you have to do is uh, tell me where the red one is, and then when I die, you can have my head. And Nagurn just kind of flatly says, I'm going to have your head anyway when you die. Uh, really, the dialogue here is fantastic. Nagurn, I presume, is supposed to be an unlikable, horrible, savage headhunter guy, but he's just so practical, so flat, and he just takes no bullshit from Bassett, who's a colonialist prick, and I just enjoy him tremendously. Next, there comes a rather unpleasant scene where Bassett decides that the only way for him to find out where the red one is is to lure himself, as he puts it, to sleeping with uh, uh, Balata, who, of course, is the woman who is infatuated with him. We get long and excruciating passages about how loathsome this is, and I'm not going to read any of them. So Bassett continues telling himself that he is, of course, the enlightened white man in all of this situation, and that he deserves to find out, you know, for science, what exactly the red one is, and um, all the t- all the while he is, you know, toying with the emotions of a woman who appears to be in love with him, and doing rotten things, um, in uh, basically for selfish motives. Now he's starting to wonder what the red one is, and he at first thinks that it must have some natural explanation. But when the noise it makes gets louder during a sacrifice of some local men, he starts to wonder if there's something more to it. So he continues spending time with her in a manipulative fashion until she eventually takes him to see the creature itself. They climb a mountain until they reach a plateau of black volcanic rock and in the midst of it he finds an artificial pit. And at the bottom of the pit... But no diamond this that he gazed down upon. Rather was it a pearl with the depth of iridescence of a pearl but of a size all pearls of earth and time welded into one could not have totaled, and of a colour undreamed of in any pearl, or of anything else for that matter, for it was the colour of the Red One. And the Red One himself, Bassett knew it to be on the instant. A perfect sphere, full two hundred feet in diameter, the top of it was a hundred feet below the level of the rim. He likened the colour quality of it to lacquer, Indeed, he took it to be some sort of lacquer applied by man, but a lacquer too marvellously clever to have been manufactured by the bush folk. Brighter than bright cherry red, its richness of colour was as if it were red builded upon red. It glowed and iridesced in the sunlight, as if gleaming up from underlay under underlay of red. Bassett climbs down to the bottom of this pit where he finds that the The top surface of the red one is uh, some sort of unknown metal, and scattered all over the top of it are strange idols the villagers have put down there. Eventually he finds that Nagurn, the witch doctor, has created some kind of throne made out of jungle materials so he can sit in it and play at being the mouthpiece of this supposed god. And he has a battering ram attached nearby which he can knock against the metal of the red one to create the mysterious 
booming sound that makes its way across the jungle. So, having found out the secret of the Red One, Bassett finds himself back in the village once again suffering from thirst and fever. So while going through some feverish episodes, Bassett begins to wonder, Who were they? What were they? Those far distant and superior ones who had bridged the sky with their gigantic, red iridescent, heaven-singing message. Surely and long since had they too trod the path on which man had so recently, by the calendar of the cosmos, set his feet. And to be able to send a message across the pit of space, surely they had reached those heights to which man, in tears and travail and bloody sweat, in darkness and confusion of many councils, was so slowly struggling. And what were they on their heights? Had they won brotherhood? Or had they learned that the law of love imposed the penalty of weakness and decay? Was strife life? Was the rule of all the universe the pitiless rule of natural selection? And, and most immediately and poignantly, were their far conclusions, their long-won wisdoms, shut even then in the huge metallic heart of the Red One, waiting for the first Earthman to read? Of one thing he was certain, no drop of red dew, shaken from the lion mane of some sun in torment, was the sounding sphere. It was of design, not chance, and it contained the speech and wisdom of the stars. So that's some early ancient astronauts type cosmology for you. What engines and elements and mastered forces, what lore and mysteries and destiny controls might be there? Undoubtedly, since so much could be enclosed in so little a thing at the foundation stone of a public building, this enormous sphere should contain vast histories, profounds of research archived beyond man's wildest guesses, laws and formulae that, easily mastered, would make man's life on earth, individual and collective, spring up from its present mire to inconceivable heights of purity and power. It was time's greatest gift to blindfold, insatiable and sky-aspiring man. And to him, Bassett, had been vouchsafed the lordly fortune to be the first to receive this message from man's interstellar kin. Uh, of course, Bassett is the first person to receive this message because the locals and the natives, they, they don't count, right? Anyway, there's a pretty good scene coming up when the witch doctor Nagurn prepares to cure Bassett's head. And he is just delightfully to the point about this. He says, It is better so. A sick man who cannot get well is foolish to live on for so little a while. Also, it is better for the living that he should go too. You have been much in the way of late. Not but what it was good for me to talk to such a wise one, but for moons of days we have had little talk. Instead, you have taken up room in the house of heads, making noises like a dying pig, or talking much and loudly in your own language which I do not understand. This has been a confusion to me, for I like to think on the great things, of the light and dark as I turn the heads in the smoke. Your much noise has thus been a disturbance to the long learning and hatching of the final wisdom that will be mine before I die. As for you, upon whom the dark has already brooded, it is well that you die now. And I promise you, in the long days to come, when I turn your head in the smoke, no man of the tribe shall come in to disturb us. And I will tell you many secrets, for I am an old man and very wise, and I shall be adding wisdom to wisdom as I turn your head in the smoke. Nagurn is just so straight up here. He's so delighted that Bassett is about to die, and he's extremely excited that he will finally get to cure his head. And he's pretty blunt about it too. So, in his last moments, 
before death strikes him down. Bassett finally elevates the mysterious ancient astronaut gods of the Red One to a uh, supernatural level. Indeed, laying the path for many ancient astronaut followers to come in the 20th century. Bassett smiled quietly to the old one's conceit as the great carved log, drawn back through two score feet of space, was released. The next moment, he was lost in ecstasy at the abrupt and thunderous liberation of sound. But much thunder, mellow it was with preciousness of all sounding metals. Archangels spoke in it. It was magnificently beautiful before all other sounds. It was invested with the intelligence of supermen of planets of other suns. It was the voice of God, seducing and commanding to be heard. So there you have it. A taste of things to come, I think. A forerunner of the sort of mystical awe and reverence in which the yeah, supposed ancient aliens were to be held. And anyone who reads between the lines of the ancient astronauts' literature, going back as early as von Daniken, and certainly reaching forward to the ancient aliens show that's still on now, as far as I know anyway, you will find this sort of pseudo-religious, pseudo-mystical take on things. It's almost as if we live in an age where we can't take religion seriously, but we still have the same need. So we recast our gods as aliens. Um, whereas, of course, within this uh, theory, it's all about how people have recast aliens as gods. But I think the same primal needs are there and the same need to believe that there's something bigger and more powerful and more thoughtful and smarter than us, which could still show up any day and save us from our troubles. I think that need is still very much uh, in there and needs to be served. And so that takes us to the end of The Red One, Jack London and the Ancient Astronauts. Is it a good story? Well, you've had plenty of examples of the writing style. If it doesn't work for you, well... I think I might be with you on that one. And I haven't even included any of the really, really, really rough racial stuff too. And like I say, hey, I read a lot of fiction from this time. I don't expect it to be super up to date. I don't expect it to be woke. But there are different levels of it. And there are some people who just really seem to enjoy it more than others. This guy, I'm not surprised to find out that he was into eugenics. So you've been listening to Wide Atlantic Weird. If you like what you hear, please do get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter, where we're at Strange Ireland. You can also find us on Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Always, 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 we like to have reviews. Please write something funny, something cool, something interesting. We are happy to read out some good ones on the show as well. Uh, if you're not bothered doing any of that stuff, fine, we'll still talk to you. All you have to do is uh, re-share or retweet or whatnot or get those episodes out to anyone who you think might be interested. Send us in any stories if anything weird has ever happened to you too. We promise to believe them, but the evidence has got to be good. And thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.